Hey y'all, it's your favorite host, and I wanted to just pop in here to say, uh, if you're enjoying the show uh, and you'd like to give us some support, the best way to do that is through Patreon. Uh, I've launched the Patreon with a couple of tiers. There's a $3 tier, which gives you access to the Discord, and you come hang out with uh, me and the other friends inside of that, uh, and just kind of talk the show, talk a bunch of different nerd stuff. And then there is a, another tier, an $8 tier, uh, where you can get early access to episodes ad-free. Um, you will also get free access to all uh, micro-RPGs that I create in the future. Yeah, so again, uh, thank you so much for listening to the show. Um, if you'd like to give additional support, that's one way to do it. Another great way to do it is just, you know, go on to whatever platform you're listening to and rate the podcast, subscribe, uh, follow, leave a review if you can. Um, those things really help gain visibility for the show, and it is always greatly appreciated. Link is in the description. Thank you so much, and back to the episode. Welcome to the Secret Nerd Podcast, where we think everyone should play tabletop RPGs and give you some reasons why. With me tonight, I am very excited to talk to um, a game designer who is doing uh, what I feel like is very, very important work in in the world of TTRPGs, um, as well as a podcaster, and uh, yeah, among a bunch of other stuff. So I'm excited to jump into this. This is going to be episode 50 officially for all the interviews. Um, so yeah, let's get into it. Nice. It's good to be coming in like right at that half a century mark. Yeah. Um. So my name's Chris Spivey. I write games. I'm a veteran. I occasionally drink scotch and I talk about it online and have people <laughs> comment whether or not they like that scotch. And then we compare that scotch to a bourbon. Nice. <laughs> Very cool. Well, yeah. Um, well, Chris, where I always like to get started is just like, how did you get into nerd stuff in general? For me, I had an uncle that was in the Navy who was an okay. engineer. And I sort of got a lot of his hand-me-downs. So I got these great sci-fi books from like anywhere from the 50s to the 60s. Yeah. And there I was, a five, like a five-year-old kid trying to figure out how to read these books and comprehend what some of the words were. Mm -hmm. And occasionally, he would come and, and grace me with his presence and say, all right, let me read you some of this. <laughs> and he'd be like, all right, young blood, here we go. And yeah. he'd read me like a couple of chapters. And then right when I get into it, to show you what kind of person he was, all right, I got to go. What? <laughs> So uh, it it started with him, and yeah. so from there, it just kind of spiraled out. Did uh, did that like spur you on to continue reading and like read at a higher level pretty early on? Oh yeah, like that's yeah. one of the reasons why when I finally got into gaming and I got the red box set around I think seven, mm -hmm. I could read through it all, I could comprehend everything, and I could explain it to other people. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So is that the first time you played? Was when you were seven years old? Yeah, a friend of mine. So to give you an idea of what Auburn, Alabama was like when I was growing up, we were seven-year-old kids and we were able to walk all the way across town to a store without our parents knowing where we were going yeah. with money that we'd saved up for about six months. 
to buy this thing in a store and walk all the way back and no one asked where we were, what happened, where did you get that? What is that? Yeah. And yeah. uh so yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a definitely a change world. I I don't even enjoy letting my kids play in the front of the house, like on the street. And we live in a pretty quiet cul-de-sac and I'm still like, nah, that's not okay. Um but yeah, I mean similarly I'm um you know even when I was younger I remember we used to like run around the neighborhood like go into abandoned houses um and we same thing be gone all day no cell phones to get a hold of us and <laughs> you just show up when it's time for dinner you know and so we lived and fortunately our street was close to like this at a woods yeah and eventually a different friend and I would go and would go exploring through the woods like uh cutting paths through Okay. We'd start in the morning and sometimes we'd make it back by evening and sometimes it would be well after the sunset. Yeah. And no one asked, so you've been gone 16 hours a day. Uh, <laughs> you've got some bruises and cuts. What's going on with you, kid? Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. That's crazy. Well, I mean, at that age, like, um, were you, did you have any fear at all of, you know, like being in the South and being out in the woods by yourself or with your friends at least? <laughs> Uh, no, because I was, I was stupid. <laughs> so just... seriously, I, I was unaware of the full ramifications of it. Yeah. Cause when I was growing up, I lived with my grandmother mm -hmm. and my grandmother was a, a very, very old, older school mindset. And her idea was try not to cause trouble and people mm -hmm. won't bother you. So they yeah. didn't necessarily teach you what you should know. Yeah. So they sort of let you live in an, an arrogance of bliss until whatever the event was that happens. Mm. And, and where you grew up, was it primarily other black kids, black families? Or was it kind of in my, in my neighborhood it was, but yeah. when we had to go to school, we had to sort of like bus out of our area okay. to go to school. Yeah. And the school setting was primarily white with maybe 20% black kids, maybe 30, depending on which grade we're in. Yeah. I'm curious, um, you know, when you were growing up, like, did that, cause obviously race has played, I think at least a big part in, in how you have looked at the history of the U S and how you have applied it to games. And, um, and I think you've done it in a very elegant way, but I, I'm curious, like when you were a kid playing games and also, um, growing up in the South and stuff like that, like, when do you feel like you started putting those pieces together? probably around seven or eight because while oh, wow. no one told me about it mm -hmm. it's impossible not to see how certain people engage or interact with you yeah it's impossible not to see like reading through role-playing books not seeing anyone that looks like me mm -hmm. or the sci-fi books that my uncle would give me on the covers there were all these like white people out in space doing all this stuff and yeah. they would talk about like their golden blonde hair mm, but yeah. they wouldn't really talk about anyone that looked like me yeah and by eight I, I had my incident by eight so oh no it's sort of well uh geeky black kid in alabama in the early 80s yeah yeah i was lucky to make it eight for something out yeah yeah god that's awful um yeah i mean it's gotten a little bit better but <laughs> not entirely unfortunately it's still so sad uh the stuff that uh that we have to go through as kids you know i think as that as you kind of grew up through that like 
did you still enjoy the the games and stuff like that or or once you kind of were aware of it did that did that retract from it all detract from it at all i've always had this tendency that if there's something i don't like it doesn't necessarily do a lot to just complain about it you have to actively try to change whatever that thing is Mm -hmm. so i engaged with gaming but then i started making my own games or i would start running games consistently Mm-hmm. And I would add in people that looked like me, people that looked like other people that didn't fit whatever the model they were trying to like shove down my throat. Yeah. So even then I was still working at trying to make sure there was representation, all this stuff. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, and two at a, such a young age. So did you like continue on playing those games through like high school and college and all that stuff? Or, or was there a time that you kind of took a break? Uh, I kept playing, but one of the things is living in Alabama, finding gamers was hard. Yeah. Being a black gamer, sort of, say if you had a pool of 100 people, cut that pool down to 30. Yeah, yeah. And then you're trying to find within that 30 people that you actually sort of gel with on some level. Right. And I was fortunate enough in high school to find a group of people that are playing D&D. My, my stance on D&D is pretty well known. I'm not a huge player of fantasy games. It's, yeah. it's not my shtick. Yeah. Um, but that's all they played and I wanted to play. So I played with them and eventually yeah. I got to the point where I got to run and I would run stuff when I got a little bit older, like Call of Cthulhu or Stormbringer, which is like my closest touch to fantasy because it sort of has some of that darkness to it mm-hmm. and a lot of sci-fi stuff like yeah. Star Wars, I think has been my staple game for, I can't remember how long or how many campaigns I've run. Yeah. Well, and I-, I don't love Star Wars. It's okay, but people <laughs> yeah. love me running it. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. So, I mean, not loving Star Wars, you still have to know a ton of lore about it just from that. Yeah. <laughs> One of those things, right? Um, yeah. So that's, that's interesting though. When, when the first like editions of Star Wars, cause I, I'm the first one I became aware of was edge of the empire. Never played it. I just was, you know, watched an actual play and it was kind of the mechanics seemed I don't know. I guess like from my brain that only looked at like D and D it just seemed so bizarre how they used special dice and stuff like that. So I'm curious, like what was it like in the first editions of star Wars? So that was sort of the old, I want to say WAG D six version where you had pips. So you would like yeah. roll a die and you get a plus to it. And if you got more than like up, I think it was plus three pips, mm-hmm. your stat sort of increased by an increment. Yeah. So you might have um, so a character with a two plus one strength. Yeah. And when you got experience, that would become a two plus two. Okay. And it became two plus three, then it becomes a three strength. But it takes a lot of experience, and then you're like rolling. The, I think it's either 2d6 back then for it. So you'd add all those kind of together. Yeah. Wild. It's <laughs> sad that knowledge is still in my brain. Space. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So um, when did you start to think like, okay, I'm going to make my own game or or really like dig into this kind of world as a more than just a hobby so you mean like a professional designer uh no not necessarily i even like you know something you did on your own where you completely like homebrewed a i don't know a setting or changed all the mechanics or something stuff like that so when i was 14 i since it was never published i basically ripped off stormbringer and i created a sort of like afro-punk fantasy setting using some of like the skeleton from Stormbringer and mm-hmm. some of the different skeletons from a couple of other sci-fi games. And so I yeah. sort of merged all those together 
and retro cloned my own thing. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Uh, um, were you able to play that for a long time? And like, how did that I think go? The group played it for about a year. Okay. Um, it was a, sort of a mixed bag. Cause like I said, they were primary fantasy players and I'm yeah. trying to get fantasy players to there. There's a little fantasy for you. Look, there it is, but here's yeah. all the sci-fi. <laughs> yeah. And some of them got into it. The other ones were like, we just want to kill dragons with pointy swords. Yeah. I want yeah. you to fight space dragons and deal with the political intrigue of what happens when you kill that space dragon and all their space dragon followers go, what the frell are you doing? Yeah. So there's repercussions for actions. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's cool. I mean, I think, you know, I've seen that more now, at least the repercussions part, people more, a more role play heavy uh, game um, stuff. That's just outside of the norm of just your Eurocentric fantasy stuff. Um, which is exciting to see. I, I still enjoy uh, fantasy quite a bit, um, but I I am glad that there are other things than just the, you know, model European medieval, incorrect European medieval <laughs> settings that are there. Yeah. Then, well, we could talk about a lot of different games at that point if we want to go for accuracy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm definitely curious. One One game, before we get into that, I am curious though, when did you become aware of cyberpunk then being such a fan of sci-fi cyberpunk was probably a little bit later i want to say maybe my late teens or early 20s actually i was more focused on space opera and mm. space opera transitioned to hard sci-fi and hard sci-fi then led into cyberpunk yeah did you ever like play it and you know is that just or just not a genre that you're really interested in i play some Shadowrun, but Shadowrun is sort of that it's cyberpunk <laughs> if you sort of like squint at it yeah yeah but other yeah. than that not that much for me there was always something about even in superhero games i have friends that like to try to play robotic characters they like replace parts of themselves with like mechanics and everything else yeah and something about that never appealed to me sort of like a dehumanization of yourself mm -hmm. to acquire power and run with that has never yeah. been a setting that appealed to me personally. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. There, I had a guest on, um, there's a, a couple of young people who do a podcast called bird of mouth. And one of them, Oleander, uh, he was talking about how in sci-fi they, for whatever reason, tend to destroy black bodies. Mm -hmm. Um, like we never get to like maintain our full self. Uh, and yeah, once he pointed that out, I was like, oh shit, yeah, that's that's a real problem. That's part of my issue with Cyborg, who mm, they like yes. who is like mm. a primary character for DC. And it also goes back to the trope where if they have a black character, they try to either dehumanize it in some form, possibly transform it into like a frog for the princess in the frog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For most of your movie, your black character, instead of seeing that black black character and interacting with them doing cool stuff, yeah. you see an animal. Yeah. Or you see like a white ghost that they pulled out of it for soul. Yeah. Yeah. So it's constantly things like that. And it's sort of re reinforcing a stereotype that we don't get to be on screen. Yeah. Even if you want to tell our stories, you shape shift us and then you get still get to tell the story. So you tech the other side technically wins mm -hmm. by saying, Hey, we gave you representations right here. Yeah. It's not important that 90% of it's not you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was like, that for sure is a, is a big gripe. But the other gripe I had was like, you know, with the princess and the frog. And I've said this before on the show, but like, 
they were like, oh yeah, first black princess. And then she literally says like, I'm not a princess. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I just wore this because my friend gave it to me because I needed clothes. Um, and that's really sad <laughs> that they just, you know, media is kind of, uh, takes a lot of that stuff away from us. But yeah, it's, um, I mean, that's interesting though. Do, were you, when did you become aware that Mike Pondsmith was a, a black man? Cause I, when I learned that I was just amazed. Um, and same with your game too, but we'll get into that. Uh, probably in my twenties. Okay. Cause I knew, I knew the name Pondsmith from Castle Falkenstein actually. Okay. And then that sort of transitioned into some different anime games. Cause they're also on my shelf, like yeah. Bubblegum Crisis, Mechton, Zeta, all those guys. Yeah. And then I discovered cyberpunk and gotcha. then I discovered Mac, uh, Mike was a black guy and I was like, that was one of the sparks for me. That's like seeing someone else making mm-hmm. kick butt games like this. And I've been making games forever made me think that you know what maybe one day i could try to do some of that yeah yeah that's really cool um and then you know the games that you've made so i'll tell you like i first became aware of you when i had a guest on and they said we were talking about call of cthulhu and i was saying i don't want to play call of cthulhu because i have no interest in playing in 1920s america um i just don't feel like that's for me and and he was like yeah like but chris spivey made this game Harlem Unbound, which is about the Harlem Renaissance. And I was like, oh, okay. Yes, now I'm interested in this. <laughs> uh, and that was it. And then shortly after I had that conversation, I think it was might have been like a month or so, um, is when you started talking about Haunted West. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, those two things I think have been, I haven't had the chance to play either one, but just like, you know, being That's it. I'm out of here. Bye. I have to. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I don't have time and uh, that's, that's my biggest problem. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I haven't had the chance to play, but I, you know, just visually and stuff like that, like being aware of them and just being excited about the fact that it's there, it's available. Um, there's so much historical context to it. And so I'm curious, like when, what was the inspiration for that? I'm, I'm sure we can, you know, I know you've probably talked about this before, but like the inspiration for that. And when did you really decide on like history into the games as kind of a your niche um that is a very difficult question (laughs) part of it is as i mentioned before i always grew up reading so i read a lot of different things and sort of a a transitionary statement then i found out that zordon hurston was my cousin and so that sort of sparked my interest in the harlem renaissance specifically Mm -hmm. because like i'm related to this person that had a part of this i want to find out what this is yeah and once i finally started looking into it i was like this is the most amazing thing ever why does no one else talk about this and that stuck with me for a long time and when i was at an estate sale when i think i was 14 or 15 Mm -hmm. i discovered the the i will only say the name once because i have to say it now Mm -hmm. uh the works of hp in the okay. estate sale mm, and yeah. i was all my friends were asleep i was in a sleeping bag and i was reading like the the outsider and this cosmic horror thing and i was resonating with this thing i was reading about this person that was trapped they felt othered and they were constantly trying to like find some way to get out of like their situation mm-hmm. and that struck me and i read all the cthulhu stuff then yeah and even as i started reading it and getting more and more to it i was like well this is problematic <laughs> yeah. even at that age yeah, but that's when I discovered the role-playing game Call of Cthulhu, mm-hmm. and I had gaming, I had a love of history, and they just sort of merged into one thing. Yeah, and in the edition of the book I got, it had a scenario called Dead Man Stomp by, um, God, I forgot his name. Um, 
Lynn and Mark Morrison. And it was about the touched on Harlem. They had like a, a black trumpet player who gets a cursed trumpet and shenanigans ensue. Yeah. And reading it, it was like, this has a little bit of, little bit of our history in it, but it is written badly. I can see what they're trying to do, but it's just wrong. Yeah. And so I started running Call of Cthulhu. For a long time, Call of Cthulhu was like my go-to game. Everywhere I'd go, I'd play Call of Cthulhu. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there are five games right now that I don't need any books for. I could just run. (laughs) Dang. Yeah. Uh, Call of Cthulhu, Marvel superheroes, like the face rip version. Yeah. Shadowrun, because I started playing Shadowrun and I know it. So Shadowrun, I will see Shadowrun 3rd edition. Could it be very specific with that? (laughs) And a couple others. Yeah. That's really cool. That sort of all merged together. And so history sort of really has resonated with me for a long time. Yeah. Um, so how, I mean, how long before you like made it a game, do you think you were playing Harlem Unbound? Um, well, that went on pause because okay. I transitioned from that and I started running when I got into college, Vampire. Okay. Vampire in World of Darkness. I yeah. ran a, probably late high school, I ran a seven-year vampire game wow while at the same time running a vampire dark ages game that ran for four years and the seven-year vampire game sort of spiraled into a world of darkness game that was a continuation wow that had a weird sort of half ending that went to the finra tapestries i don't know if you know guy gabriel k we did a little stint there because i read those books i was like that's really cool now i just yeah. want to like put that in the game yeah that's cool and after that random stuff yeah. So did you join the military right after high school? Uh, no, I joined the military after a little time after 9-11 because oh, okay. I wanted to do something. I felt like I wanted to do something to help. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, thank you for your service, first of all. Yeah. So, you know, when you were, if you don't mind me talking about it, like when you were in the military, what, what did you do? I did stuff. <laughs> stuff. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> um cool so yeah so i think you know it's kind of painting the picture so i guess i will i will put in since i was vague enough with that that i did have my tour of duty in iraq and i ran routes like everyone else but okay my that i was not a 11 was not my primary mos i had a different mos okay which is like your military occupational school yeah um yeah so yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when it comes to like the history and and the game design and stuff, it seems like it was pretty uh a pretty straightforward path into into what you you done. And and you've made other games too. Uh am I correct? Than those two? I've I've worked on a couple things. Like okay. some I've worked on Dune, the new Vampire Chicago Night book. I've worked on the new Call of Cthulhu starter set. I wrote Langston for Trail of Cthulhu, which is sort of like a 1940s um, home. So it's stateside during during the during World War II about mm-hmm. a black PI. Okay, and it's like their solo series. So it's all in Washington D.C. 1940s during the war front. Gotcha. And like 15, 20 other things. I've been a little busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, that's so cool though and yeah so i mean the obviously the big one now is the um haunted west which i watched that uh six six uh 
episode series um, that was done on Roll20 with Trooper and Quinn and Brandy and all of them. Uh, and it was absolutely wonderful. And that game seems uh, like so much fun. And it seems like a really good blend, too, of, of those things that you talked about, of the history and the, and the sci-fi stuff. So I guess first, let me say, since you said that, a big thank you to Roll20 for doing mm-hmm. that. That yeah. I just I had, I got throw them there like their kudos before we went yeah on. yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely um, it was so cool for me because so um, Quinn Quinn was the first for sure black game designer that I had on my show uh, but he was the first one I ever reached out to um, and just learning he existed you know along with everybody else that I've met um, was just like the most amazing thing for me because I was so out of touch with like. TTRPGs, social networking, I just avoided all of it outside of what I could find, uh, you know, briefly on my internet uh, or going to like a store. And um, so, yeah, so meeting Quinn was was amazing. And so it, it was cool to see him playing this game. Um, it was cool to see Trooper running the game because I think that was the perfect fit for uh, anybody to run the game. Um, yeah, so it's super exciting. But, you know, the, the game itself... Uh, because I think it's, I'm sure you could have just made a Western game, right? Uh, very like realistic Western game. So, what was the inspiration behind making those the combination? I could not just make a Western game. <laughs> okay, fair um, enough. Fair enough. So, a lot of it came from Harlemund Bound. Harlemund Bound taught me how to make a role playing book. Okay, and getting to do the second edition of Harlemund Bound taught me more about how to get out the message and the history and everyone to everyone else yeah and like retain the truth of it but also try to add additional fun widgets so people have other things to engage with yeah because like the first edition of harlem unbound is i love it because it's like my fashion project yeah and it was made with uh nothing but sheer willpower (laughs) luck and a few people that listened to me let me convince him to help me yeah. And because when I was making the Harlem Bound, the first one, no one knew who I was. Like mm. zero. Yeah. Uh, I approached some other larger game companies to pull. I'm, I'm eventually going to get around your question. I'm, I'm like, no, you're I'm good. on the horse. I'm doing like a slow trot around <laughs> around the ranch. And then it. we're going to try to like start up on the path to get to the salute. This is the best way to answer oh. the question. So you're good. And so after no one would publish Harlem Bound, like no one would touch it. They're like, no one will buy that. No one wants to see it. And I decided that I could make it myself. Yeah. And that meant trying to figure out, A, how to make a book, how to figure out how Kickstarter works, how to get people to work on the book. Uh, funnily enough, Quinn probably doesn't remember this, but Quinn was one of the people I reached out to to work on the first edition of Harlem Bound. Oh, but yeah. <laughs> I didn't know how to do it. I was like, yeah. just on Twitter. I was like, hey, super famous person. That is awesome. <laughs> Would you come work on my book for a pittance? Yeah. And he, he he was nice enough to say, hey, that sounds really intriguing person I don't know off the internet. <laughs> yeah. But I've got all this other stuff going on right now. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So uh, I haven't mentioned that to him yet. So hopefully he listens to this. It goes yeah, back yeah. and thinks, what the? <laughs> uh, and so the people that I got uh, were incredible. Some of them I actually ended up working with on some other smaller projects. So they knew who okay. I was. And that sort of yeah. gave me like an inroad with them. And learning how to make that book taught me what not to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 
the second edition, I did some revisions and I smoothed out some of the other parts from the first edition of the book. We added new art for it. And since Chaosium was publishing that version of it, I wanted it to be distinctively different than the first edition. Okay. Because if you bought the first edition of the book, if you want to buy the second edition, I want you to have incentive to buy the second edition and get something new from it. Yeah. So part of it dealt with like changing some of the history. I removed, I purposely removed a scenario from the second edition of the book, but I added in four new ones. So you've okay. already got more content. Yeah. And we added a different section about the history of Harlem and like having people walk down the street, more art. I gave me a chance to bring in Jabari Weathers. They mm-hmm. are an exceptional artist that everyone yeah. should hire. Yes. And so doing all of that and reading the reviews and responses, because first edition, there were a lot of white people that said, I love this game and the idea of it, but I am uncomfortable running it. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> that does nothing. That yeah. Thank you for your money. But that doesn't get out the message. That doesn't try to make safer spaces for people. That doesn't yeah. incentivize anyone to make a change. So in the mm-hmm. second edition, I put in like a specific little blurb for 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 white fragile people (laughs) and explained all this to them and if your listeners are offended by that i'm I'm sure they'll be fine no you're fine (laughs) then you should probably look at your own life and wonder why that you're offended by that yeah and run harlem and run harlem unbound um and so all of that let me know that making haunted west i needed to make sure i included all the history that i wanted i wanted the truth to be in it i want a diverse team of people to make the book but the game mechanics themselves have to feel all whiz bang and like a joy to, to play with. And like it sort of hits all those endorphins every time you do it. Yeah. So I spent a time studying a lot of other systems like D&D that everyone loves, uh, <laughs> Pathfinder, some Star Wars stuff and like figuring out what sort of gave like that little endorphin hit. And then mm-hmm. I had my own system that I'd been working on for a while and I sort of merged those all together. I refined it and I brought in other designers because as a writer and designer, you have a brilliant idea that is so incredible until someone else reads it and they go, Hey, that's pretty good. But have you thought about X, Y, and Z? (laughs) Yeah. And the sign of a, what I think is a great writer and designer is someone who can say, Hey, you're right about like X and X and X. Z yeah. is here because of this reason. And you can mm-hmm. have a discussion and a flow of ideas yeah. because one person can't do it. You need a, a small team of people that you trust to make a better product. Yeah. And so the history is there, which was, in, which is, I think is incredible and un- unbelievably important. Mm-hmm. And the mechanics are there. So now you have like the whiz bang mechanics that get you all going where you can be all super cool. Like whoever you want to be gadgeteer practitioner, like a wrangler, any of that and doing amazing stuff like you can use your lariat to like whip up a tornado if you want it to at higher levels of the game yeah or you could run it serious where you're like on the Oregon trail and you're afraid to die of dysentery <laughs> like all of that's there for you yeah but the real crux of the game itself is the history yeah and the breakdown of an entire section of the book is history of the people there's like history of the land there's history of the timeline there's history of like different locations and all of those are as historically accurate as we can make them as culturally sensitive as we can make them using like the actual names for people and then we have in parentheses the colonizer's name to keep it as a constant reference point for people that like these are the real people and this is what we've done Mm -hmm. it gives you that constant back and forth 
and it needed to be there if I wanted people to be willing to play who knows whatever kinds of characters because yeah. it has a milestone system, which is sort of a randomly rolled character creation system that you could end up playing uh, a black, a formerly enslaved black drover that became like an officer in the civil war. And that is how you're and now you're kicking off into the old West. And like, that's a history chain that you went to yeah. regardless of your own race, gender, ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And for me to want you to try to do that, I need to equip you with as much information as possible. Yeah. So even in the book, the chapter before character creation is all about the people. Mm-hmm. We got talk about the indigenous tribes. We talk about all the different immigrants from different parts of the world that come here. We talk about the black people. We talk about the Latinx people that were already here. We go into all of that detail. So you have that knowledge to run with. And we mm-hmm. talk about sex and gender that was also in the old West and how the LGBTQI folks are like right there, like kicking butt and making a difference. And all yeah. of that is there to you before you go to character creation and character creation for the milestone path. When you're rolling, it brings up all these little different pieces of events and history itself is also integrated into that. So it is impossible for you to start the game just as random cowpoke ready to shoot some folks (laughs) yeah you've got a history you're part of the world even if you didn't want to play that i've already thrust it upon you to make you a more deeper character yeah that's so cool and i mean it is it's really so important and i think that was one of the really fascinating things i i saw of the book is like having all that history there because one as I'm sure you probably know from doing all the research is like a lot of it is not easy to find. Um, you know, it's not super accessible, uh, and we're not learning it in school. I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> I, I certainly didn't learn who Bass Reeves was until this past year. Uh, so yeah, it's a shame. Uh, Chris is shaking his head. Um, and yeah, it's, I, uh, I'm not judging you, but I'm judging the school systems. No, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. With. Yeah. And I mean, I grew up in one of the worst ones in, in the U.S., unfortunately. So, um, but yeah. It's, I'm willing to bet, though, that it was probably better than Alabama. <laughs> May, marginally, if that. Like, it's New Mexico, and we are literally in the bottom three every year. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's it's pretty bad. But yeah, especially when it comes to black history. But yeah, all that said, like, I think it's it's so cool that it, that's there, that, that now people who want to go into this game and play historical character and get in touch with some of the stuff that you know people in their family went through or or you know touch on any kind of ancestry like you have that there now that's information that you can learn and play a great game which i think is like that's super invaluable it's so cool that it's there yeah i love to see it so that's yeah that's super exciting i you know i was curious i wanted to go back to harlem inbound like making that game like your first proper game or whatever like how long did that one take you so it depends on do you mean the reading of it when i first got the idea and i wrote down a whole bunch of notes or the actual work when the work started i would say yeah when the work started so i think the book went to kickstarter in 2017 yeah. Um, before that, I was probably trying to get other people interested in the book in 2014, 2015. Wow. So for the people are trying to, for the different companies I was approaching, I had sort of a 
we'll say a sampling. So it was mm-hmm. roughly a scenario, it was sort of a touch on some of the history. It was maybe 30 pages. Yeah. Enough to show you what it would be if you wanted to invest. Yeah. And like I said, all the companies said no. Yeah. No one wants to talk about any of that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, and I don't know. I don't know how much it's changed for people trying to make big games. Um, but certainly there are more people now making games, right? Small games, um, games of a bunch of different sizes. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I, I think it's interesting to know and invaluable information for folks who are working to, to do that because I personally um, made a one-page RPG and then I was like, I'm making a big game. Like, I, don't, I don't know why I went from zero to 100, but that's the way my brain works. And, um, but it is, it's, it's a lot of work. And I think sometimes, you know, we don't always think about that. Like the, you know, you got to write it and you got to make sure it's people want to play it. You got to make sure people want to buy it and all that other stuff. And that takes time. So as a indie, as an indie company, there's just me. And yeah. occasionally I, my, my wife steps in out of, out of sheer, sheer grace for the, the horrors <laughs> that I'm going through. So before something goes to Kickstarter, I've probably been working on that for a year or two before the Kickstarter. Yeah. And then after the Kickstarter, it's usually another year. Yeah. Or with COVID, two and two years. Yeah. And the impact of COVID was devastating. It right. increased prices almost threefold. Contracts I had with people, they raised the prices after signed contracts. Mm. The price of paper skyrocketed. So the printing costs of the books were incredibly escalated. And you've seen how large the book is. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's a, that's a big pain in the ass. Um, and for people that want to make games, my primary thing is going to be know that you want to do it. Because yeah. at the end of the day, there isn't going to be anyone else that cares about whatever it is as much as you do. There isn't yeah. going to be anyone else up at three in the morning sitting there still working after dozens, hundreds of dozens of hours other than you. Yeah. And even when they've given you all the help they can and more than what you've paid for, and you thank them and they go on their way, you've still got months of work to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot. It's a, it's a huge endeavor. Um, but I mean, I, you know, the end product of that, obviously, you know, if you can, if you can get it done right is, is these big, beautiful books that people get to take home. And, and uh, I'm sure that that payoff is exciting when that's done. Uh, it, it is exciting and nerve wracking as yeah. you wait to see, for one, if anyone will review the book. Yeah. Or if anyone talks about it. And then two <laughs> is if anyone reviews a book, because <laughs> that suddenly becomes, ooh, is this like a good review? Is this going to be right. a, a bad review? Is it like a review from a neutral person? Is yeah. it a review from a person with an agenda? Because mm. I know that I was contacted by drive through from about some people before trying to post reviews of the book. And they weren't really reviews so much as their own political opinions about people that discuss race and gaming yeah yeah so i mean that's that's a i don't even want to say it's a tricky thing but i think it's it's a conversation that's come up quite a bit um and what do you think is good advice for people who are trying to explore race and themes of racism in their games do you mean as a publisher or as a player uh Hmm. As a publisher is the way that I meant that question, but when you asked it now, I'm curious about players too, from your opinion. 
for a publisher, the first thing is to have people from whatever demographic you're trying to bring up and don't bring them all as sensitivity writer or sensitivity readers, but bring them on as creatives early in the process as possible. Yeah. And get their opinions, listen to those opinions, and then try to implement those changes. And the thing is, no one person can represent any community of people. Right. So you do the best that you can, and then you use your own judgment. And even after you've gotten all that material and you've read, read through it, you've edited, they've given you the thumbs up, you get, you, then you get sensitivity readers uh, of hopefully those same groups but different people yeah. to then read through it again. So then you have at least two layers of opinions about something. Yeah. And then you can sort of try to decipher how to go from there. It is expensive. Mm-hmm. It is time consuming. It is re- unbelievably rewarding. And frustrating at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. I can tell you that writing the book, I, I am by no means perfect. And mm-hmm. I brought in sincerity readers. For one, I was working on a section of the book that I wrote that I didn't feel comfortable with, but I didn't know how to address it. And I had a sensitivity reader basically give me red lines throughout the entire thing. Wow. And so I think that was about 5,000 words. I took those 5,000 words out of the book and I reworkshopped the entire piece for that and added like an extra month onto the book because it's important to get it right. And I listened to that person. And part of the thing for publishers is, well, one of the reasons I don't do a lot of sensitivity reading work is that you can't be sure if the publisher will take your feedback, but you can be sure they will use your name. (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good point. (laughs) And since you've signed contracts, a lot of people are then unable to say, that's not what I gave them. They're a bunch of a-holes and this is why. Yeah. And usually in a contract, there's sort of a, a non-disclosure agreement where you have to say, that really wasn't what I intended. I don't know why that got in there. Yeah. And people won't usually attack larger publishers, but they will attack individual smaller people without less followings who they don't want to work for. Yeah. That is a weird, the way people associate the wrong person with the thing is so bizarre to me. <laughs> so bizarre. Like I don't, I've talked about it before, but like, I, I don't know if you play video games, but like in the last of us Two, the people sending Laura Bailey death threats because of a thing that a character did that she voiced is like, she, she didn't even make the game. Yeah. <laughs> she just re- read the lines that they asked her to read. I don't like, how do you get to this point? People have outrage, but it seems generally people are less inclined to attack power structures mm-hmm. that if enough people attack them, power structures would be forced to change. Yeah. But that also means power structures potentially won't be hiring you to do any work for them. <sighs> yeah, it's uh, the cycle. And then, and then on top of that, TTRPGs is already a very small, hard to get into like at a you know company level. Um, kind of a thing like yes there's tons of people thousands of people out you know putting stuff out on itch and doing things independently but to have any kind of like stability to do, do things like that it's such a it's not an easy thing to do well i know that when i wrote harlem bound i was going to publish it i knew that was going to close a number of doors in the very small ttrp industry for me and it has yeah That's but unfortunate. it was too important for me not to publish it yeah no, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's, 
it's incredible. And it, and I, I think the world's better for, for the book being available to us all. So it's just, you know, I think I'm not the only one. I know I'm not the only one who's, who's looked at Call of Cthulhu and went like, that's just, that setting isn't for me. Um, and it's so important that we have people making stuff that's creates representation, uh, where there wasn't any before where it wasn't even considered, um, you know, or it was written poorly. <laughs> right. So one of the reasons, including all the history is always so important to me, even though I've read reviews that say, we don't need all this history. People know this history and that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, one of the key reasons I include the history though, is that it is so hard to find the information mm-hmm. and people don't necessarily have the resources or the time or Fortunately for me, like one of, um, part of my day job, I was an analyst mm-hmm. and then a program project manager. So yeah. I have a very distinctive skill set that lets me sort of cipher through large volumes of information. Yeah. And I wanted to distill it down to what's essential and show people like the actual true history, but also provide like a launching off point for other people to do research. Yeah. In Haunted West, we drill down to find there was one person that traveled from their country to the u.s to fight for the union side in the civil war we tracked that person down included their name and like a little brief story about them wow so like if you wanted to know what that country did there you've got this person to start with yeah or we've got other people that there was sort of like this camel force that was in the army we talk about them and we talk about like one of the key figures in that and that's all there and there's some of them call out boxes, some of it's in history, some of it's in like the timeline we provide, but it gives people reference points to work from. Yeah. Like one of the things I try to stress to the team for the book, because it's not just me, it's a team of people, mm-hmm. is that we want the full story. Like just don't say um, Johnny Y shot Jane Z. <laughs> Great. We know that. Why? Yeah. Like what happened? What's the actual thing? Like one of the writers in the book, um <laughs> discovered there was one of the one of the, there's an outlaw in the book whose father was a buffalo soldier mm-hmm. and his entire thing was like the buffalo soldier father left the son and the mother done and i was like so why he's like they just left and then i went back and i researched it and said ah if you look here this is one of like the biggest battles that was like fought between like white racists and buffalo soldiers and if they didn't flee the area they would have been lynched mm. like that's, yeah, that's full important story. context yeah that's not yeah yeah i mean yeah those stories it's just so incredible the the history um that's there and you know it's unfortunate that some of so much of it gets erased uh constantly um but yeah this is like i said it's such a cool way to be able to engage with a game where you can actually learn something as well like i think that's you know it's just so fun so invaluable i'm super excited i i you know i hope i get to play it soon and yeah that's that's it i just want to play it uh i'm just super excited um but yeah another thing i wanted to talk to you about too while we're on is uh you have a podcast where you talk about (laughs) (laughs) sci-fi so i i'm a fledgling podcaster hey me too. This has only been 50 episodes. It's less than a year. <laughs> so I, I am I am by nature a writer and mm-hmm. an introvert that can become an extrovert, especially when I get to like GM a game. 
But then yeah. after that, I want to go away and not have people talk to me. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Yeah. And COVID reinforced that even yeah. more so than before mm -hmm. from the isolation. And I didn't like that. And one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to figure out a way to sort of change that and try to be somewhat more engaging. Yeah. And I was fortunate enough to have been interviewed by Onyx Path for some of the work I did for them, like for Mask of the Mythos. Uh, I worked on Scion and some other things, and they're always fun to go and go and have an interview with. And Eddie and I just always seemed to sort of rift, and then we became friends. And on one of the podcasts, I said, Eddie, I've got this idea of a podcast that we can do together. Offhandedly. And he says, yeah, sure, I'm down for it. Yeah. He didn't really think I was serious. Because <laughs> I have a tendency to make a lot of jokes. And then, yeah. and then I emailed him out of the blue. and says, hey, remember when you volunteered to be part of this podcast thing? And there was a, an email back that went, yes, with a question mark. All right, this is my thought. And I sort of like explained it to him. And I was like, this is the brilliant idea for the best podcast ever. And he's like, that is an interesting idea. How about we talk about it? Yeah. And so we sort of riffed back and forth and we created Genreless. Originally, it was going to be a different title, but Genreless seemed to work better. Mm -hmm. And we are doing it in seasons and we talk about sci-fi right the first season of sci-fi shows that we like i think yeah. the last episode of first season just dropped yeah that's really cool i listened to the uh the battlestar galactica one um because that was a show that i was like it was one of those things where you, you know when you're like aware of stuff but you're not really like you haven't absorbed it at all and just heard people talk about it for a long time most of my life and um yeah, and I was like, okay, one day I'm going to finally watch this. And I was instantly just like, oh, this is so cool. <laughs> Even though it was like, it got hit, it had already been out for 10, 15 years, something like that. Um, the newer one with uh, Katie Sackhoff. Yeah. And Edward James Almost. Um, and so I was like, okay, I can, I can get past like, you know, the Cylons, I look cheesy and like the planes that like, you know, like all the bad CGI stuff. I'm fine with that. Um, but the story was really interesting. Um, and I didn't think about it until listening to your show. That I don't know that there were any black people in that show and I'm trying really hard to think. And I just can't remember. There was, I don't think two black people. Were they actually like main cast people? They were tertiary cast people. There was okay. D on the Battlestar, there was D who became yeah. Apollo's wife and they had a very messy storyline. Yeah. And occasionally there was a black Cylon that showed up for mm. four episodes, I think. Yeah. Let's be nice and say five. <laughs> yeah. I don't even think I ever finished Battlestar because I, it got, you know, when it gets weird, like right at the end. And then I was just like, I don't, I don't even know if I care how this ends anymore. I think I still have like six episodes to finish before I'm actually officially done. <laughs> uh, and I stand by Adama is still the bottom of my captains, I think. Oh, yeah. Of of just a Battlestar or of any show? Um, So we rank the captains in the show. During, yeah. during the show, for people that are curious, I occasionally make goofy games just on air. Just to uh, somewhat to taunt Eddie and somewhat because it's fun. <laughs> yeah. And one of them is came like, so we rank all the captains if we had to like choose our preferred captain and out of the eight series, out of the eight series, we sort of rank all the captains for each episode we go through. Yeah. And Odama is constantly floating to the bottom of my list. He, yeah. He's got, he had a lot of problems. <laughs> he really did. Who is number one? Um, I guess we could leave that for the listeners. I'll spoil everything. Well, I'll <laughs> tell them. Like, okay. If they want to check it out, they can yeah. because 
uh, first season was sort of a space opera season we went for. Yeah. So we talked about Buck Rogers, Battlestar, Deep Space Nine, um, Babylon 5, and we ended with Blake 7. Okay. So for me, my top captain was a constant debate between uh, Cisco and Sheridan. Okay. In the end, uh, Sheridan went out. <laughs> yeah. But it was like by point one. Because for me, I want a captain that is a little bit more ready, battle ready, if it comes to it. Yeah. With less drama. Well. <laughs> they, the drama had a lot yeah. of drama. That was, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Battlestar, I, I don't know. It was so much fun, like, for so long. Um, it just it just gets so strange at the end. And I just was very confused. And I was like, I don't, I don't know. Like, Lost did it that is, to me, too. Did you ever watch Lost? Fascinating. I would drop in and out of Lost. I mostly yeah. watched Lost because I was going out with someone at the time that really dug it. Yeah. So it was one of those, well, we're a couple. I guess yeah. I can watch this. Yeah. When I first started watching it, it would, I think it already ended. And I was just like enthralled. And then it, and then like fourth season in, I was like, I don't, I don't get this anymore. <laughs> this is just too <laughs> weird. <laughs> this doesn't make any more sense. Um, so then I have to ask, yeah. did you get a chance? transitioning from, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. from that before I give too many spoilers. Uh, although I will throw it a pitch. Uh, season two of Genreless is airing, I think, next week. All right, there we go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Did you get a chance to watch the Holloman Bound actual play last night? I'm dating the podcast, people. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's fine. Um, yeah, I didn't. I uh, My kids were trying to get uh, my daughters to sleep together in the same room, and that has not been easy. So I am going to watch it this week, but I haven't had the chance to watch it. <laughs> I will say that London was phenomenal. Lond yeah, London. London is who I had on the show. Who He's the first person who introduced me to you. So nice. yeah, yeah, uh, London is great. The entire cast was excellent, but London is keeper. Yeah, yeah, he, um, he's excellent. Yeah, I, I, nothing but good things to say about London. Um, but yeah, so definitely folks, was that, uh, which Twitch channel was that on? Or uh, it's on it was on Chaosium's Twitch channel, okay. and the YouTube video is up on Chaosium's YouTube, and it'll be up on my YouTube probably tomorrow. If folks want to catch it. Okay, yeah. So this will come out in a month. There. So this will be definitely this will definitely be available. So definitely go check it out. Um, yeah. So you know when it came to that, um, did was uh, London able to pick the cast, or did you pick the cast, or how did that work? I reached out to Chaosium in January saying, okay. I don't know if you saw it, but I put a post, I, I did a, a Twitter thread about how people running APs are incredibly important for games mm -hmm. and no one is running any APs of Harlem Unbound, regardless mm -hmm. of all the awards it got, museums, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And I listed out, I think, five APs out of the five years it's been in existence, one yeah. of which was mine. <laughs> <laughs> and so I contacted Chaosium saying, hey. I think we, I think that we should try to put on an, an AP, like you guys have resources and you've got like all this other stuff. I've got some people in mind that I really like to like to play the game and we could do something together. And it yeah. took until yesterday to make all that. <laughs> yeah. I provided them a short list of keepers who Londo's on the top of my list mm -hmm. and I provided them a short cast list and all the folks they got were pretty much handpicked. Okay. Yeah yeah um it's so cool i mean london uh when we talked he had mentioned he wanted to play Holland unbound with an all-black cast um 
And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I did you become aware of him through his podcast? No. Uh, actually, I received uh, a random, random PM from some dude on the internet <laughs> saying, uh, hey, I really like Parliament Bound. And yeah. I would say, great, thank you. Yeah. And then he says, so... <laughs> and so uh london sort of reached out to me and we just sort of started chatting and he's super awesome yeah he is he's super super cool so yeah um it took a couple years for for haunted west to to be done do you think that you're going to continue working on haunted west for a while or do you, or do you already have like you don't have to go into details but you already have like new games in mind one of the things about me is i always have a lot of ideas it's just a matter of time um, yeah. Up on my my hard drive right now, I probably got seven fully fleshed out spines for entirely different projects. Mm -hmm. And for Haunted West, it's eight hundred odd pages, but yeah. I cut twenty percent out of the book to squeeze mm -hmm. it down to eight hundred pages. And yeah. I've got enough material to make three campaign books, I think, right now. Oh wow! And yeah. Even for Harlem Bound, I've got this sort of massive campaign in my head, if I ever have time to write it. Yeah. That for folks that are in the know about Cthulhu, it's almost like the size of Mask of Narothotep. Okay. Yeah. I, I haven't dug too deep into that, but yeah, I um, Delta Green, which is, you know, uh, parallel to that. Um, they have a big... Uh, I can't remember the name of it right now, but yeah, they have impossible a big, landscapes. Yeah, impossible landscapes. Yeah, I, that's like as big as the core rule book. So, <laughs> yeah, because I, I think I also love me some Delta Green. Yes, Delta Green is so much fun. Um, that's one I can get in, and I don't even really like living in America 2022. But you know, it's <laughs> at least you can. There's some more relatable stuff there. Uh, actually, Shane reached out to me to write for Delta Green, and I was on board, but my schedule changed, so I had to bow out, and I'm oh, no. so bad. <laughs> but uh, now I have time again, but yeah. they've already like assigned it. I don't want to go back to, hey, you should like kick that person off and let me write this book instead. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, hopefully in the future, I mean, if they continue to do stuff, that'll be you know something that can come back around, because I think that would be so much fun. Um, that's, that's a game that I, I love writing scenarios. And uh, yeah, you can get into some really crazy stuff in, in those games. So yeah, that's super exciting. Um, one last question I wanted to ask you, if you still have some time, I know I kind of, you made multiple different game systems in Haunted West so that people could play different ways. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, why did you do that? <laughs> not, to, <laughs> not, not a criticism at all. I'm just curious. Um, um, one of the, the tenets of the game is it, it's to be able to play however your group wants to play yeah so like i mentioned that you could play super historical or super high pulp fiction mm -hmm. so basically you could play the game i'm gonna go back to the game styles now uh you could play the game as a almost purely historical piece yeah you could play it as a weird western piece you could bring in the alternate history that i wrote for the game so you could layer any of those on top of themselves and play yeah. like with one, two, three, or any of those. Mm -hmm. And that is to enable your group to play a game how you want to play it. And yeah. I wanted the same sort of versatility for the system. Even like the history was always going to be there, but from the initial thought of the game, it always had three systems to it. Okay. I wanted one that was like really complex with a whole bunch of widgets to it. Mm -hmm. That so people got those endorphin hits when they did super cool stuff like 
we've got a horse racing mechanic. We've got like mm -hmm. a dueling mechanic, a social duel mechanic. But then I also knew there are people that don't want that level of complexity. Yeah. I, I love crunchy stuff. Yeah. So then we have one that's almost incredibly narrative focused where you have only the players rolling and the balladeer doesn't make any rolls. Mm -hmm. They just eventually get to the point where they say, all right, that's too much for me to believe. Make, make a call. <laughs> yeah. And we also knew there are people that really love the idea of miniatures combat. And so I wanted to include all those. And yeah. part of that goes back to like the old 70s sort of space games. I don't know if you ever played any of those mm -hmm. like little miniatures they would have and they have points and everything else when they moved. It's sort of a, a callback to those. Gotcha. Yeah, that's super cool. Well, I mean, uh, you know, it sounds like there's something for everybody and you've made it as accessible as you can make it. So I think if anybody can't get into it, then that's probably their own fault. <laughs> And then one of the, the stretch goals was uh, even even more, another layer on top of that cake was a Powered by the Apocalypse hack. Oh, wow. So you've got the Haunted Westworld hack, which is basically an entire hack for the game included in the game. That's, yeah. I mean, I don't know, folks. I don't know what else to tell you. Just go, just go get it. <laughs> um, that is super exciting. And, you know, I just want to say, again, um, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, and doing this, like, uh, you know, I think that, I think that you being a black creator, a game designer for me personally is, is so huge. Um, especially because of the games that you've made, uh, and what they represent uh, being so important. And so thank you for that. And I think it's just, yeah, I'm super excited to see, uh, what else you continue to do and, and watch people get into these games and, and just see where it goes. I'm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. That means a lot. And I was happy to come on. You'd be surprised by the shocking few number of invites for interviews I get. Crazy. Absolutely <laughs> insane. Um, well, yeah, it's crazy, but it's not unbelievable, unfortunately. As a person who interviews a multitude of POC people, um, it is it is uh, surprise, not surprising to see other shows just kind of not do that. So, um, but hopefully that changes and um, I will definitely, you know, turn anybody that I know uh, your way because I think it's, it's important to continue to get the word out. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you would like to reach out to us, check out the many options on the Anchor app or anchor.fm on your browser. You can also reach us at secretnerdpodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to the show, and if you'd like, leave a review to help us grow this thing. Until next time.